Thank you very much. Good uh, afternoon now. Uh, great to see you. Great to see you online. Thank you for joining us and being with us. Um, I, I watched every moment of the coronation yesterday. I'm a little bit of a sucker for that kind of thing. I, I'm guessing there's a mixed response to that in the room, um, but I love it. And uh, I watched every bit of it and just so, so struck by how God-centered the whole thing is. In a nation that has turned its back on God, this cut through like a knife. Praise God. And we can only, we can only, yeah, come on. <laughs> and um, we can only pray that something gets through. And actually for the king himself, I don't know where he stands, but we can only pray that going through that has done something in him and has moved him and stirred his heart. And for me, the moment was when you get this sight of the king stripped of all the regalia, just in this tunic, and the screens come round, and he's anointed with oil. And it's this sacred moment of the king coming before the king of kings. And I just thought, that is so, so powerful. And again, I pray that something happened in that moment of anointing. It's a holy moment. Why are the screens round? Because it's a holy moment. It's a sacred moment. It's, it's a moment between, really, him and God. And... Um, this is the thing, is that Jesus invites us into such a holy moment every day. He invites us to have that sacred time with God. He says, go into your room, close the door, basically be with your Father in heaven as he teaches us how to pray this prayer. And this prayer is brilliant. This is the fourth week out of five that we're doing on this prayer. It's a brilliant prayer because I think so many Christians struggle with, how do I pray? I don't really know how to pray. And so you end up giving up. You don't do it. It's much easier praying with others, and we do that as well. How do I pray? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us. And so it's worth spending this time working out, well, what does he mean by these, this prayer? What does each line mean? Do we know? Do we understand what we're praying? So that's what we're doing. And today we come to this line of the prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This line is really all about freedom. It's freedom, the freedom that comes from repentance and the freedom that comes from forgiving others. And so we're going to start with that first part, forgive us our debts. Now, the debts, what debts do we owe God? The debts that we owe God are very much linked to our sin. And actually, those words tend to be used pretty interchangeably. So in Luke's gospel, the Lord's Prayer does use the word sin. It's a slightly different word in Greek. It does use the word sin. Forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who sinned against us. In Matthew's gospel, the word used is translated as debts. So what is a debt? A debt, I'm sure we all know, but let me explain because it just helps us understand what we're talking about. A debt is when we have an obligation to somebody. And we tend to think of it financially. So on a financial basis, if somebody um, lends me £100 and on the basis that I'm going to pay them back that £100 at the end of next week... I am now in debt to that person. Our relationship has changed. I am now in debt to them. I'm indebted to them. I have an obligation to pay them back by the end of next week. And if I don't do that, then I have broken my obligation. I've broken my obligation. And then what I, what I might do then is come to that person and ask to be forgiven that debt. Please forgive me that debt. It's asking to be released from that obligation saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pay that money back to you. So please, can you release me from this obligation? Release me from this debt so that even though I haven't paid you back, 
I am no longer in debt to you. That's no longer the thing that defines our relationship. And of course, the person doesn't have to agree to that. I have no right to expect to be forgiven by anybody. But if they do kindly agree to that, what they're really agreeing to is to absorb the cost because they are still £100 down and they're not going to get that money back. So there is a cost and they've chosen to absorb that cost. They've absorbed um, the debt and they are saying, I'm not now or in the future going to demand payment of that £100. I'm not going to bring that up again. I'm not going to demand repayment. You're released from the debt. And of course, debt and obligation can work on a moral level as well. You know, I, I do something good for you, so you now owe me. You owe me a return favour or you owe me your loyalty. You owe me your allegiance, whatever it might be. It's less easy to quantify than a financial debt, but it's still a very real debt. It's a very real obligation that can also be kept or it can be broken. When we come to God to ask him to forgive us our debts, there's only one reason we do that. It's because we have broken our obligation. Otherwise, we're not going to come to ask for forgiveness because we can pay him back. So we come to ask for forgiveness because we have broken our obligation to him and we cannot make up for it. We cannot pay him back. And really, the debt that we all owe God as uh, our creator and as a holy and perfect God, we owe him obedience. We are his creatures. We're created by him. We owe him our obedience, complete and pure obedience. That's what we owe him. And anything that falls short of that is sin, which is why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, because none of us have been completely obedient to God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of God's standard. We simply cannot give him what we owe him. We can't do it. We're incapable of living that life of complete obedience that he requires. We mess that up every single day. No matter what your background, no matter what kind of a life you're living, we mess that up every single day in thought, in words, in deeds and actions. We fall short of God's standard. We fall short of obedience. And we come to him really saying, I, when we ask for forgiveness, we're saying, I know I should have done this. That would have been the right thing to do. That would have been the obedient thing to do. And I didn't do it. Please forgive me. Or I shouldn't have done that. I owed it to you to not do that. You didn't want me to do that, but I did it anyway. Please forgive me. I broke my obligation to you. I have no way of making it up. I can't pay it back. Please release me from that obligation. Please forgive my debt. Wipe it away without me having to try to pay anything back. You absorb the cost. That's what we're saying when we ask God to forgive us our debts. Now, the question that you might have very understandably at this point is well why why does Jesus ask us or tell us I don't think he's asking us I don't think he's telling us why does he tell us to repent to ask for forgiveness every time we pray because am I not already forgiven I don't know if you've ever thought like this am I not really forgiven because I believe because of what I've been taught and because of what I read in scripture that I have been born again I encountered God, I gave my life to him, I submitted to him. I've been born again, brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I am in the kingdom of God, praise God. But because I've been born again, my belief is that I have already been justified by faith. I've been justified. The Bible teaches I'm already righteous because I've had the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, credited to me, as though it was my own, even though it's not. 
But God looks and sees the righteousness of Christ on me, which is why believers in the New Testament are referred to as saints. Not because they don't sin, but they're referred to as saints. Holy ones, righteous ones, rather than as sinners. So why do I need to keep on coming time and time again asking for forgiveness? Does Jesus just want me to constantly feel guilty and heaped way down with sin? Is that what he wants? To kind of keep us in our place? Why do we have to keep coming asking for forgiveness? I think it's a good question, but when we ask that question, it also shows, I think, that we're looking at this prayer through the wrong lens. So the Bible uses different pictures or frameworks to describe and depict our relationship with God, how we relate to God. There are different ways that that is described. And the one that we're probably thinking of when we think of all this stuff is a legal framework, the the picture of legal justification, your legal standing before God, your position before him, how he sees you. And that's where you get the imagery of a courtroom and standing before God as the judge. God is judge, I am in the dock, and basically one day he is either going to declare me guilty or innocent. And in that legal framework, the justification framework, if you have been born again, as Jesus talks about, if you've been born again, if you are in Christ, if you have by faith put your trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, in his death and his resurrection, if you've repented and you've received his forgiveness, you've declared him as Lord, if you are born again, then you stand before that judge innocent. You are innocent. You are justified. The judge declares you and will continue to declare you for eternity righteous because he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are righteous because even though you committed the crime, Somebody else served the sentence. Somebody else stood in for you. Somebody paid your debt. Jesus paid it. He put himself in your place so that you get to walk free because of his righteousness. That is your standing with God if you are in Christ, if you are born again. You are innocent. You are righteous. And it doesn't change. It's a done deal for eternity. Praise God. But if we look at this prayer through that lens, that legal justification lens, then this could feel like, you know, Jesus saying, ask for forgiveness every time you pray. It could feel a little bit like, well, I've got to keep going back into the courtroom and just checking with the judge. Are we still okay? Are you still, am I still innocent or are you going to, are you going to send me to jail? Are you going to send me to hell? It's like going back into the courtroom constantly, basically because you're unsure of the verdict. And so you feel pretty insecure and you've got this need in you to just keep asking for forgiveness just in case, just in case I've missed something, just in case, you know, so I really can make sure I'm going to heaven. And of course, it's when we see this in that light, in that framework, it, it, it opens a doorway for guilt and condemnation to come in. And as we talked about all of last term, we have an enemy who is only too delighted to heap guilt and condemnation on us. That provides an open door for him to do it. And it's like we get into a position of feeling guilty, condemned. We've got to constantly berate ourselves every time we come to God for messing up and each time desperately hoping God is going to forgive us and that this isn't the time when God is going to turn around and say, no, enough, I've had enough of you. Get away from me. That's where we can go with this. Thankfully, that's not what Jesus is saying. That isn't the lens that Jesus is inviting us to look through at this prayer. He's not using a picture of legal justification here. He's not asking us to relate to God as judge in this instance. He's using the biblical picture of family. 
our relationship with God in family. Again, it goes back to those first two glorious, beautiful words of the prayer, our Father. Our Father. He's using a family picture. This isn't, this isn't the sinner's prayer. Right? This, isn't, this isn't a prayer for salvation, to be born again, to be justified before God. This is a prayer for those who already have been those who already have been born again. It's a believer's prayer for those who've already been adopted into the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Now, this is important because forgiveness in a family context looks very different. When you ask for forgiveness in a family context, it's all about restoring relationship rather than a legal status. So if I sin against my wife or she sins in some way against me, we don't suddenly become less married It doesn't affect the legal status of our marriage. That has been the same since the 17th of November 2001, and I trust it will remain the same until one of us is no longer longer here. It doesn't affect the legal status of our marriage. It does, though, affect the relationship and the closeness of our relationship. And so we need to repent, and we need to ask for forgiveness to bring restoration into our relationship, to bring harmony back into our relationship, to get rid of the distance that's developed between us or with children you know I've got three children two girls and a boy and um, if one of them does something or says something which I don't like or more likely I'll do something or say something which they don't like it causes some sort of um, let's just say there's been some unrighteous words or actions spoken between us it doesn't affect the legal status of our relationship as father and daughter or as father and son it doesn't affect my love for them I love them when they do the right thing. I love them when they don't do the right thing. I love them all the time. They're my kids. That doesn't change, but it does affect something in our relationship. Something comes into that. There's a disruption in our relationship, and so some restoration is needed to close that gap. So we ask for forgiveness in a family context, not to secure our status, but to live in the good of that status to really be experiencing and living the good of being a husband or a wife, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, whatever the relationship is. It's to live in the good of that status. And when I sin against God, I am no less a child of God. That doesn't change. That status is completely secure. But I want to be living in the good of that status. I want to be living in the good of that relationship. I don't want distance in our relationship, and neither does he. He doesn't want distance in that relationship. I want to be living in the fullness of life that Jesus promised. I want to be living and experiencing what it is to live in this world as an adopted son of God. Live in the good of that status. So really this comes down to what drives our repentance. What drives it and what it has to be driven by to be true repentance is adoration for our Father. See, if you come to God not sure if he loves you, not sure if he's, if he's forgiven you, not sure if he really accepts you, then your confession to him is always about trying to, to earn something. It's trying to make up, it's trying to pay the debt yourself, really. Your confession to him is really trying to earn your salvation, which you can't do. It will destroy you. If that's how you see it, if that's how you see God, it will destroy you. It will lead you into condemnation because it's confession that's coming from a legalistic, forced perspective. It's fear-driven. It's fear-driven repentance. Real repentance comes from rejoicing in the love and the acceptance of God. 
It comes out of adoration. It comes from a desire, an overwhelming desire to be in his presence and in his love and close to him. And this is what the cross gives us. The cross of Jesus Christ gives us this. The cross means that two things can be true at the same time, that we might struggle to reconcile our minds. The cross means, one, it shows me the seriousness of my sin because Jesus had to die for it. So I'm never going to trifle with sin. I'm never going to treat it lightly. It is serious. Jesus had to die for my sin. But it doesn't lead me into condemnation because the second thing the cross also shows us is how much he accepts me utterly. Because he went to the cross. He is that committed to me that he would go to the cross. He is that committed to to our relationship, to reconciling me to God, to, to, to making me more and more holy, to, to helping me to be what I can, all that I can be, to develop into what he has for me. He is that committed to me that he went to the cross. So that is someone who utterly accepts you. And so what, what that does, it makes me want to go towards him in repentance, not out of fear, but out of adoration for him, out of adoration for my father and what he's done and just sheer amazement and joy that he would accept somebody like me, but he does. It makes me want to respond to his invitation to approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, to come to your father. Well, think of it like this. At the risk of laboring this point, I just think it's worth laboring because... I think so many people struggle with this. I think so many people struggle with condemnation and how we view God. So think of it like this. If your boss tells you something that you've done that you've messed up really, really wrong and, you know, going for it, saying, oh, you, you messed up really badly, didn't you? I'm gonna, you know what? I wanna, I've got half mind to cut your pay. In fact, I want to demote you. Actually, I want to fire you. That's what I really, I really want to fire you. You better shape up. You better start doing better. Otherwise, there'll be consequences. And you might respond in different ways to that. You might say, yeah, look, I messed up. I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. But that's a sorry that is driven by fear and consequences because you don't want to lose your job. So it's coming out of fear and consequences. You might respond in self-hatred, like, you idiot. Why did you do that again? Why did... It was so easy to get that right, and you messed it up again. You keep doing it, you fool. And you castigate yourself and you berate yourself. Or it might be you get into real anger at your boss because of the way he's speaking to you, the way he's treating you. I just think that's how so many people relate to God in in any of those ways because they see him in the wrong way to start with. But if your father comes to you and your father says, son, you got that wrong. You know, you, you got that wrong. You disobeyed me. It doesn't change how I feel about you. It doesn't change how I how I see you, it doesn't change my love for you, and you know what I've done for you in the past, and you know what I will continue to do for you in the future, but I want you to come in repentance. I want you to repent because I want you close. I want you close. I want to come and embrace you. I want you to come and embrace me, and I want this distance between us that's come in because of this sin, because of this debt. I don't want that distance between us. And when you see it from that perspective, and you come and you say, Father, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That is a different kind of sorry. That's driven by grateful love and joy and grace. It's not driven by fear. It's driven by adoration. And we need to know that. We need to know and live in the ongoing forgiveness of our Heavenly Father just as much as we need our daily bread 
which is what we spoke about last week. Jesus says, ask your daily bread. Then he says, forgive us our debts. We need that every bit as much. And we ask for forgiveness knowing that we are forgiven. We know that we're forgiven. We're not hoping to be forgiven. It reminds us of our need of God's grace. It helps us guard against self-righteousness because we're aware of the reality and the seriousness of sin. We are incapable of doing it ourselves. We need God's grace. But what we discover when we come to him is that his grace is given freely and lavishly. It costs him everything, but he gives it to us freely and lavishly, not begrudgingly because he is our father and we are his dearly loved children. It's good news. It's really good news. That's only the first half though, isn't it? Because Jesus says something else in that line. Effectively, Jesus says the test of this ongoing repentance, that you're doing that and that you are receiving God's forgiveness on an ongoing basis. The test of that is that you will also be forgiving. Forgive us our debts as, just as, in the same way that we have forgiven our debtors. And this is actually the one part of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus adds a little bit of explanation, further explanation at the end. So verse 14 to 15, he says, For if you forgive men, people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And um, on face value, that's pretty frightening. (laughs) That's terrifying. If we take it as we first as we first read it, if we take that as literally as it sounds, then we are done. We're finished. We are hopeless. If God's forgiveness of us depends on our forgiveness of others, or if God will only forgive us to the extent that we forgive others, we're in big trouble. But of course, that isn't what Jesus is saying, because actually that would contradict the rest of Scripture. That would be getting into a kind of a works-based salvation when it's clear from the rest of Scripture that we are saved by grace through faith, and even that faith is a gift from God. It'd be like Jesus is telling us, well, this is how you can earn your salvation. This is how you earn your forgiveness from God. God's forgiveness is dependent on you doing certain things, going through certain hoops. That isn't what he's saying. And again, when we think of it like that, it's probably because we're making the mistake of looking at the prayer through the legal justification lens. We we make the mistake of thinking what Jesus is saying here is if you haven't forgiven somebody, if there's somebody in your life you haven't forgiven, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying, but I think that's how often people read it and get into all sorts of fear and condemnation again. That isn't what Jesus is saying. What he is doing, though, is making a very clear link between our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with other people. In how, in how we relate to others is very dependent on how we relate to God. He is saying, Jesus is saying, forgiven people forgive. If you know you're forgiven by God and you are living that, experiencing that, you're aware of that, forgiven people forgive. And if you've stopped forgiving others, it's because you've stopped repenting and you've lost a closeness in your relationship with your father. You've, you've forgotten or you, you're taking for granted the sheer vast extent of his forgiveness for you and you're not living in the good of it. You're not living in the good of your status as an adopted son or daughter. You're not experiencing that in your life. You're living as an orphan, actually. You've forgotten you have a father. You're living as an orphan. And so then, in that case, if you come to confess your sins to God, as Jesus says, you come in repentance, but you're not willing to repent of the sin of unforgiveness, you're not really repenting. And so the relationship with your heavenly father is affected by that. It's disrupted. The harmony is disrupted 
in that. I mean, Jesus talks about this in other places as well, uh, about forgiveness. But it's like if, if one day you were to receive uh, 10 million pounds from some distant relative you knew nothing about, 10 million pounds, just completely unexpected windfall, and then someone, your friend comes to you and says, oh, I'm so sorry about that 20 pounds I owe you. I know I said I'd pay you back today, but is it all right? I don't have it at the moment. Is it all right if I pay you back next week? I mean, you'd have to be some sort of a monster to get angry about that at that moment and insist that he pays it back today. More likely response would be, forget about the 20 quid. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Look at what's happened to me. Look at what I've been given. I, I don't know where this came from. It's totally unexpected. And that's the thing. Anyone who comes into unlooked for and unearned wealth should become exceedingly generous because you've suddenly been given something you know you didn't deserve. You know you did nothing to earn. You know you weren't expecting it. You should become very generous. This is the point Jesus makes in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, where the servant um, is forgiven a huge and completely unpayable debt by the master, by his master or by the king, you know, originally the master is threatening to put him in prison because he can't pay the debt and sell everything, including his wife and children. But he, he asks for forgiveness and the master forgives him the debt. He lets him off the hook. Only for the servant to then go out and demand payment for a much smaller debt from his fellow servant. And he does have him thrown in prison because he can't pay. And it's like clearly what you know, the, the point is that he has not understood the extent of what he's been forgiven. He has not understood it. He has not appreciated it. It's not changed his heart. It's not changed his life that he has been given this second chance completely undeservedly. Jesus is saying to us in this line of the Lord's Prayer that the test of whether you are really rich in my mercy, the test of whether you are really receiving God's forgiveness and living in the good of it is that you are forgiving that you are forgiving. Just as God has done for you to a far greater extent, you are willing to say with people in your life, I am not going to hold that against this person. I'm not going to hold them to the debt that they owe because of the wrong that they did to me. Actually, you're saying, I will absorb the cost of that. There is a cost. You're not getting repayment, but you're saying, I will agree in forgiving. I will agree to absorb the cost. I will absorb the debt. Why? Because I have been released so mercifully, so graciously, so generously from a far greater debt by my Father in heaven through Jesus, his Son. So who am I to withhold that from somebody else? And so when you're praying this prayer, when you're praying the Lord's Prayer, it's good to think, is there anybody who you are withholding forgiveness from? And you can ask God to show you as well. And I'm not talking about sitting there for hours and hours racking your brains just in case you've forgotten something. The things that you know about. And the things that God reveals to you, the things he shows you. But is there anybody you're holding on to bitterness, resentment, or you're treating someone badly or speaking about them badly because they've treated you badly and you're seeking some sort of revenge? Check if there's anyone you're holding in unforgiveness. And then you make the choice. And it is a choice. It's not a feeling. You make the choice and commitment to forgive. Otherwise, when you come to God and say, forgive me as or in the same way that I have forgiven others, you're not asking for much. In fact, you're asking for something pretty bad. And it will affect your relationship with God. Now listen, I know for some people this is really tough. Like forgiveness is really tough because you've been wronged in unimaginable ways. That I can't, and I'm even going to pretend to be able to put myself in your shoes. 
Some of you have been sinned against in horrific ways. And so for you, forgiveness is a huge deal because it feels so unfair. It feels like you're letting someone off the hook. It's, 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 it's huge and it's tough for you. And really it needs a whole other sermon or, or sermon series to be able to properly speak into the complexities and nuances of forgiveness. So forgive me for only scratching the surface of what is a very deep subject. But here's what you need to know. When you make the choice to forgive, you are not saying that what was done to you didn't matter. You're not saying that. And you're not saying even that there, there shouldn't be consequences for what was done. In some cases, there absolutely should be. But you're not saying that what was done didn't matter. What you are doing is you're trusting God and you're putting it in his hands because he sees what's been done to you. He loves you. He loves you so deeply and he feels it deeply, what was done to you, and he will deal with it. He will deal with it. Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You give it to him. Forgiveness isn't sweeping what was done to you under the carpet as if it didn't matter. It really did matter. And it mattered deeply to your Father in heaven. But forgiveness is choosing to put your faith in him and to trust God with what happened to hand all the pain and all the demands for justice and revenge over to him in the knowledge that he, the perfect judge, will ensure that justice is done one way or another. He will make sure all things are evened out and justice is done. In the meantime, the great thing is you walk free. You walk free of it. You walk free of bitterness. You walk free of the resentment. You walk free of being kind of joined to somebody else and you know the freedom of God's forgiveness for you and you live in communion with him. I'd said at the beginning, this is all about freedom and it is. It's the freedom of repentance and it's the freedom that comes from being able to forgive others because of the forgiveness you've received from God. Question I just want to finish on is how do we pray this? How do we pray for repentance? Because again, I think some of us struggle with that. Forgive us our debts. How do we pray that? So three brief points on that. One, name your sin. Be specific in your confession. Don't just pray forgive us our debts in a very general sense. Name it. Name what you're repenting of. It does say debts, plural. So name them. Sorry, Lord, forgive me that I lacked compassion in that conversation earlier. I was just too wrapped up in my own thoughts. I was selfish and I was unloving because I was putting myself first. Or forgive me, Father, for speaking so unkindly, for using my words to tear that person down because I was angry with them. Forgive me for indulging those thoughts. Forgive me for not taking the opportunity to serve that person when it arose. It's good to be specific in your confession of sin, not to dwell on those sins, not to heap condemnation on yourself and feel terrible about yourself and beat yourself up, not to sit there again worrying, oh, have I missed one out? If I don't think of everything, then he's not going to forgive me. no. No, that's not what he's saying at all. But about confessing specifically, it just means you are recognizing. You're recognizing the seriousness of it. You're, you're recognizing where this debt between you and God has built up and where you've been disobedient. You're taking sin seriously so that you can fully experience and know the forgiveness that comes. So name it. And then secondly, take responsibility for your sin. Avoid the temptation to shift the blame. That's where genuine repentance starts. When you know, you, when you confess, it's owning up, isn't it? It's owning something. It's saying, I did it, with no excuses. Because it's very tempting to say, you know, I'm sorry for what I did to that person. I'm sorry for what I said to that person. But they treated me so badly. You saw that. You would have done the same. 
Or, or but I've, I've, I've been under a lot of pressure recently and, and, and that's, why, that's why I did that. Or, but I do get angry sometimes because of my upbringing. That's not repentance. That's making excuses for your sin. That's what Adam and Eve did right at the beginning. You know, God says, what is this? Thing? What have you done? And Eve says, blame, she says it was a serpent and Adam is like, oh, it was the woman you put here with me. You know, not my fault. I did it, yeah, but it wasn't my fault. They were extenuating circumstances. That's what we do. And of course, there are extenuating circumstances. There are external factors that affect how we respond and how we act. But true confession, true repentance is acknowledging, but I chose to act in that way. I chose to respond like that. I could have responded differently, but I chose to do this. There's a film that was made in the late 80s called Dad, featuring Ted Danson. And um, full disclosure, I haven't actually seen the film. Um, I just heard Tim Keller use this illustration in a sermon he preached, and I thought it was good, so I'm going to nick it. And... um, in, in this film, the now grown-up son, there's been a rupture in the relationship between father and son, and the now grown-up son asks his dad this question. He says, why was making money always so much more important to you than mum and me? And the dad, first of all, says, oh, because that's what I thought, that's what a man did. You know, society told me that that's what a man was, that you go out and you provide and, you know, you do all that. And, and you know, I thought that's what a man was and I, that was wrong. And then he stops and realizes what he's doing and he, he, he looks down and he says, no, 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 no. That's an excuse. It's because it made me feel powerful. Making money made me feel powerful and I didn't feel powerful when I was with my family. So I went out to go and feel powerful. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And it was in that moment of unmasking the sin and bringing transparency and not trying to shift the blame. You're not trying to blame his culture for how the culture portrayed men or whatever, anything like that. Just owning it himself, it brought reconciliation and transformation in his relationship with his son. When we are specific, we name it and we take responsibility for it, you know, and really name it. Don't just say, you know, like, forgive me for worrying. Think, what is worry? What's behind that? Worrying really is saying, you need to say, forgive me for thinking that I know what's best for my life more than you do and for thinking that I can run the universe better than you but it manifests itself as worry in my life call it what it is it's pride it's, it's thinking we know better but when we do that we unmask the sin and we own it and bring it to God it brings reconciliation it brings forgiveness third point so name the sin be specific um, take responsibility third thing and probably most important thing is always remember you are coming to a father. Always remember, you're coming to a father. You're confessing to a father, not a boss, not a hard taskmaster, a father. And as we see in scripture, this is a father who runs. He runs towards his wayward son who's coming back covered in shame, covered in muck, head bowed low, wondering how he's going to approach his father. And the father sees him and he runs and he runs to embrace him and he runs because he wants to lavish his kindness upon him. He wants to lavish his love upon his son because it's his son who's come back. You come to a father because his love for you is not based upon your perfection. 
His love for you is not based upon your beauty or your goodness. It's based on his perfection and his beauty and his goodness. You come to a father in full assurance of your forgiveness because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are fully assured of forgiveness because of the cross and because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So I want us just to do something. We've got time? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get a little bit Anglican, okay? Um, <laughs> we prayed for the king, and now we're going to do some liturgy, all right? It's, I don't know what's happening to me, but... Um, the Anglicans use the Book of Common Prayer as their liturgy, you know, lots of different prayers. and It's written by Thomas Cranmer centuries ago, but there's so much dynamite in that Book of Common Prayer. It's brilliant. Not everything, but most of it is absolute dynamite. And so I want us that there's a prayer of repentance that in the Anglican Church they pray together as a congregation and then the minister prays a prayer over them. And I just want us to do that. This is not the moment necessarily for us to get deep into our forgiveness or who we haven't forgiven. Probably not the appropriate moment for that. But this we can do. So let me read this prayer that I'm going to ask us to read together, to pray together so you can see what it's saying. Okay, so this is the prayer. It goes, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father... We have sinned against you and against our fellow men. There is no messing around here. It's just straight up, we've sinned. No extenuating circumstances, we have sinned. In thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. That's what we're going to be praying. So if you feel like you can pray that prayer, and I don't just mean read the words, I mean pray it. You don't have to. Nobody has to. But why don't we stand together and let's pray this together. And then I will pray a prayer of response over us before we get into breaking bread together. Okay, so all together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow men in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. And then I'll pray this over us. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Shame.